You're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me today is Balaji Gopalan. Balaji is the CEO and co-founder of MedStack, which is improving the accessibility of healthcare security through an automated deployment platform, MedStack Control. Balaji, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, looking back on your early career, you studied mechanical engineering at the University of Toronto with a long-standing position as a materials science research assistant. Out of school, you then joined Bombardier Aerospace, where you quickly rose through the ranks. What is it like looking back on all that engineering experience? Yeah, uh, great question. I, I, it's funny. I don't, I don't know if I've ever been in an interview asked about the work I did in material science. So, so you know, that's, that's quite amusing that uh, we're going back that far. But, um, you know, I, I think the best way that I characterize it is when I was younger, I, I had a great fascination with engineering. It is sort of what I always wanted to do. I, I liked the process of invention. Uh, and, you know, I toyed around with some different ideas when I was very young uh, on paper. And, um, and I was fascinated by how the things that humans can create can interact with them to help kind of improve their lives. And, and so I never really wavered from, you know, a pursuit of engineering. Uh, my first love was aviation. So, you know, I did everything I could to, to kind of uh, chase that as a, as a dream. Uh, I was fortunate, just speaking about what you asked about, uh, when I was uh, young, um, you know, like a teenager, uh, I had some opportunities to, you know, have a bit of a different summer job than a lot of my friends. Uh, who, who might have been, you know, wait staff or, or newspaper delivery or what have you, all the prototypical tropes. Um, but uh, I got to work for um, a company that was run by a friend of my parents uh, that was deep in the science realm. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, chemistry was never sort of my primary focus, although I did find it quite fascinating. Uh, but the biggest thing that I took away from that experience was, you know, just how you, you need to let your work for, speak for yourself. Uh, quality is, uh, is the thing that people will remember um, and, uh, and professionalism. And I had sort of early exposure to that. Definitely some bumps along the way, but, uh, you know, some good lessons. Um, I guess my claim to fame, that part of my life was I did get my name put on a scientific paper because I was basically running the lab uh, in, in running, uh, in doing some research in, uh, electrified materials basically is what it was. Um, so, you know, that's what I took away from that was really work ethic and professionalism and, and project management to a degree. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I finished my, uh, my degree in, in engineering um, and I found engineering school really challenging. Like I, you know, I, much more than I had expected it to because I did reasonably well in high school. And so I figured I had a strong academic career in front of me and pictured myself, you know, doing multiple degrees, uh, standing in a wind tunnel, studying aerodynamics. Um, and then I got to university. And I was like, wow, this is really hard. Uh, and I worked very, very hard in university. Um, you know, I did pursue things to try and have a bit more of a, a balanced experience, but the academic performance was really important to me. Uh, but as I went through school, I, I started sort of burgeoning this notion that maybe there, there was something more other than than the technical creation that was in my future 
Um, and so what not a lot of people know is by the purest definition of the word, I've never actually worked as an engineer. Uh, you know, I, I did, I did my internships in science. And then, uh, when I got the job at, uh, Bombardier Aerospace, which was a tremendous honor. I mean, it was, um, at the time considered to be a, a penultimate sort of industry force in the Canadian ecosystem. Um, and I got to work on some very, very cool things when I was there uh, and some stories that I still love to tell. But my job immediately was actually not design engineering. It was, uh, it was manufacturing support. And, and without getting too you know, deeply technical, what that means was uh, I was running around on the assembly floor and airplanes are still built by hand. You know, they're, they're not built by robots like other things are. Uh, working with um, you know, the hardworking men and women on the shop floor to ensure that they had the things they needed to, to be able to build the product. And so I developed this really strong affinity for kind of people interaction, which surprised me because I didn't think that's where I would be ending up. Uh, and then I saw sort of what engineers did all day, which was you know pouring over designs and drawings and mathematics and calculations. And I kind of said, I really respect the importance of that, but it's not really what I want to do, although I'd like to work closely with them. Uh, so that would put me on a path that would sort of eventually lead me to where I am today. And that obviously transitioned into you getting an MBA. What was the thinking about getting it at that point in your career? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you had told me when I was in high school that, or even earlier, that I would be going to business school, I would have been flabbergasted. You know, it just wasn't <laughs> my area of thinking at all. Um, and, and part of that was because I had, you know, perhaps some misconceived notions about what uh, what business was. Um, I guess just to jump ahead a little bit, you know, I'm the founder of a company and, and I've had a tremendously enriching experience over the last six years, but I never had ambitions to do that. Uh, it, uh, I'm, it's really more mission driven than anything else. But um, what happened was when I was at Bombardier, I, uh, so I, I started in manufacturing support and then because of the diligence with which I pursued, you know, how managing the transfer of information between people so that they could do their jobs effectively, uh, I was offered an opportunity to join the, the program management group and program management. I know that it's a bit of a businessy term that doesn't really mean a lot. Uh, what it is in, in that context is, you know, the organization that's responsible for the success of the product line in its, uh, in its, in its business, uh, its business life. So, you know, ensuring that risks are managed and plans are established and, and budgets are set and, and uh, all these kinds of things at a very detailed level. Um, and that uh, eventually led me to a role in which I was uh, managing the change board. So, you know, in software, we call this product management uh, and in manufacturing has kind of different names, but same kind of idea where, you're making a decision about what the product should be uh, and you're making um, financial and technical trade-off decisions with uh, a number of other stakeholders on what gets built and what doesn't get built. Um, and I had the opportunity to do this in a very, very cool context because this product that was being built was the first uh, jet airplane built by the Toronto division of Bombardier Aerospace. Uh, and the first program that was built by multiple companies submitting parts of a design together, which is how other kind of aviation companies, larger aviation companies have worked for a while, but this was new to Bombardier. And, uh, um, uh, and the product itself was, was really cool. I mean, it was a $50 million business jet. Uh, and uh, um, I found myself 
moving more and more to a management context. So like trying to understand the decisions that were made around market and customers and pricing and, you know, uh, forecasting and risk management. Um, and, and so I started kind of asking a lot of questions and wondering how these decisions are made. Not that I necessarily felt they were always bad decisions, but I just want to understand them so I could defend them properly. Um, so, uh, you know, circumstances occurred as they do. And, uh, unfortunately this was at the end of the last, uh, last millennium and, um, you know, it got into 2001. And of course we all don't remember what happened in September of 2001. Uh, and so when, when 9-11 happened, the aviation industry got completely turned on its head, uh, and, um, very, you know, frightening and an interesting place to be at the same time. Uh, so I took that moment to kind of ask myself, well, maybe it's a good time to go and look inward and develop my skills. Uh, and so I decided to pursue a business degree primarily just to get better at my job. That's really what I wanted to do. I was a manager, uh, of a, of a team. I had a team of, of six people reporting to me, uh, and, uh, and I wanted to be a better manager and I wanted to be a better contributor to the company. Um, but what I would not predict was all the things, I, I guess I went in with a mind saying, I don't know what I don't know. So, you know, let's learn um, all the things that I would learn in that program, which really was a pivotal moment in my life and, and had me uh, um, eventually deciding to pursue something new. Right. So you mentioned your love of aerospace and it really shines through as you even talk about some of those past mm -hmm. projects that you worked on. So then what triggered that industry switch uh, after business school with your move over to BlackBerry? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, if you want to work in aviation, there's not a ton of choices. Um, and uh, I liked my job. I liked the people I was working with. I was just, at the time when I left the company, I was in the head office in Montreal uh, and, and I had a great team. I had a fantastic manager and mentor. Um, but, uh, but I just found myself kind of thirsting to learn new things. And when I did uh, my MBA at, at Queen's University, which was a lot of fun because I'm, I'm originally from Kingston, Ontario. So it was going home for me. Um, I, I, I came to learn about the process of strategic marketing and, and which is, you know, really this, uh, academic mindset around looking at a particular market segment. What do they want to do? How are they trying to do it? And what can you do to make that better? And how do you turn that into a business? And I found this idea really fascinating. And I said, I'd like to pursue that as a career, but I know that in the industry I'm in, things move a little slower. I mean, the product life cycle is 50 years, right? So can I learn as fast as I want to learn in an industry like that? And maybe I should do something different, but I didn't know what. Um, and so I was coming humming and hawing and thinking about things to do. And, um, I had, uh, you know, time, the other kind of major event in my life around the same thing, which was, I got engaged right before my MBA and got married right afterwards. Uh, and, uh, and, and was wondering what to do. And one of my classmates said, well, what about technology? And I said, okay, that sounds interesting. I don't know much about it. I'm not a software engineer. I've, I taught myself how to code when I was a kid. Uh, and I did that and I really enjoyed it, but you know, I'm not an electrical engineer and, and I mean, I was so naive that I actually thought software and electrical engineering were the same thing. And of course this is 2004. So the world was very different back then. Uh, but they said, well, there's this company that's, that's recruiting right now for market strategists, you know, why don't you apply? I said, sure. And I'd never been West of Toronto. 
Uh, and I'd also never heard of this company that at the time was called Research in Motion. Um, so, but I, but I was curious about what they were doing. And I did some research and I said, oh, you know, they're a cell phone company. Okay, that's interesting. So I better learn before I go for this interview. And so I went to a cell phone store in the local mall, uh, a mobile carrier store. And I said, okay, I'm here, sell me a Blackberry. And I listened to everything that the salesperson had said. And I said, I have only one context to come at this. I have no industry expertise, no preconceived notions, but I'm just a person who buys a product. What do I understand? What do I not understand? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense about who I am and, and how they target me as a customer? Um, so I went for my interview. Uh, funny story is because I'd never, these are the days, of course, before Google Maps and things like that. Uh, so I had to rely on a paper map in my glove compartment. I'd never been west of Toronto, uh, in a car anyway. And, uh, and there was an accident on the highway, unfortunately. And so I got, my car got diverted. And I ended up, you know, completely in the wrong place, up up in the the mountains near Niagara Falls, uh, and uh, and it was two hours late for my interview. But fortunately, <laughs> they they still accepted me when I went in, and I said, look, here are all the things that I've learned about your products and things I think you might need to think about differently, and uh, and they gave me the the job. And and what was fun about that was, you know, at the time. Uh, the company wasn't even called BlackBerry yet. You know, it was called Research in Motion and the, the product was called BlackBerry. Uh, but it was, you know, sold almost entirely into government buyers and central IT purchasing departments of companies uh, for use exclusively by executives. Uh, and, and also, I'd, I'd also say uh, almost exclusively North America. But there was a bunch of firsts that were just happening in the company. So they're starting to look beyond North America. We had some beta testers in Europe. Uh, and then perhaps more significantly, there was this idea that if you could sell a BlackBerry device to a company and it would be given to the executives and the executives' lives would become more efficient, what would happen if somebody else saw that and wanted to be a part of the same type of experience, but they didn't have a central purchasing department? And so we were experimenting with this idea of selling Blackberries through wireless carriers to consumers directly. And it was a, almost like a secret project because it was culturally so different than what the rest of the company was doing. And that was the group that I joined. Um, so we were a startup in, in an enterprise, if you will. Um, and, uh, and I joined as sort of an entry level product manager. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of find my footing. It was really strange for me because I was in a very, I'd come from a very different industry. I mean, the contrasts are stark. So I'd spent eight years at Bombardier Aerospace wearing a tie four days a week <laughs> because that's what happens in manufacturing. And, you know, I'd tuck the tie into my shirt and crawl into the guts of a half-built airplane. And then I showed up that way my first day in the job at, at BlackBerry. And everybody's like, you know, what are you doing, right? And this is, this is tech. We operate differently here. Um, and, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the lack of bureaucracy and red tape and, and those kinds of things was, was surprising to me. Uh, but I had to kind of find some frame of reference to do my job. And soon I realized that there were things I had learned before that I could apply, namely around, you know, if you strip away what the product is and the time horizons, the questions are still the same. You know, what is the, who's the customer? What are they trying to do? How are they doing it? How can you do it better? Uh, and, and, you know, and then all of the mess in the middle, which are channels and, you know, B2B type relationships. And so I started kind of seeing a lot of similarities in the way that we had to manage our relationships with companies like 
you know, Vodafone and AT&T and, and Rogers and, uh, and others, uh, very similar to some of the things that I'd seen in, in trying to sell, you know, an aircraft to a, um, a fractional ownership company. Um, and, uh, and I picked up on those things to sort of do what I do. What I do. But uh, I had a really interesting opportunity at the beginning because I almost became sort of like a, a micro manager of innovation. And the question was, we've opened up this channel, but everybody thinks of the BlackBerry as an email device, which is fine for the executives where the value proposition is, if you can access your email when you're not at your desk, you can be efficient. But what happens when you put it in the hands of a professional consumer? What other things might they, might they want to do? You know, what do we do with this crazy, you know, uh, space age idea of Wi-Fi and a cell phone? Like nobody had heard of such a thing at the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, and what, what happens if you have a, a real-time internet connection, which was the really big hook that BlackBerry had, you know, which was we were the only cell phone manufacturing company that also had our own infrastructure um, that allowed us to have a secure connection between uh, the device over the air to a, a set of servers that were plugged into the internet, um, which means we could do things that other devices that were going through the carrier infrastructure couldn't do. Uh, and if you have that capability, how do you provide some new experiences? So that was what I started researching, which would eventually lead to this, this project called BlackBerry Messenger. Well, yeah, all over the place in your time at BlackBerry. And mm -hmm. you worked there for almost eight years after working yeah. at Bombardier for almost seven years. Mm -hmm. And then you left BlackBerry in 2012 and, and took mm -hmm. a few months off to reflect. And after that reflection period, uh, you bounced around several companies. Yes. So you then moved between, I think, five companies in the next five or so years. What really changed in your approach as far as tenure with a company? Yeah, you know, I don't know if that was really premeditated, but I, I came out of, I guess, a turning point, you know, in my life, in my career, uh, a bunch of things had changed. So when I first started working in, you know, for Bombardier, it was like right after school, I didn't do the travel around the world and, and backpack kind of thing. I, I really wanted to pursue a career uh, and, uh, and, and became very focused on just doing my job um, and contributing as I could to a larger machine. And if you put the two of those organizations together, um, you know, that was almost 16 years. And then one year in the middle where I did nothing but school. Like I, you know, I was very, very focused on, on, on my education when I did my MBA. Um, and when all that was finished, I found myself in a place where I learned a lot, but it was very difficult to explain what it was because in, in, you know, 2012 BlackBerry had a bit of a brand crisis uh, because the iPhone was taking over the world and we were considered to be yesterday's news. And, you know, the, the tech world was starting to realize that the tastemakers of opinions generally were in, in Northern California. And, um, and, and down there, everybody said, you know, this Canadian company is yesterday's news and, and we shouldn't pay any attention to them. And that's all I knew. Uh, and so trying to figure out how to explain that to people when, when I look back on my experience and I realized I was good at what I did, but what I was really good at was managing a lot of internal challenges within the organization uh, that had grown very quickly. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and then the other, the other thing, major change in my life, of course, was I was a father. Uh, and so I 
it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do with all that information. And um, I spent a bunch of time at home. I, you know, my, my younger daughter had just been born and uh, I got to take care of her quite a bit uh, and uh, reflect on the next thing I want to present myself. And I, I looked at like, okay, well, I love doing product management. That was the thing I knew. It's like, I really, really love doing product management. Even, even though like, I even look at the career I had at Bombardier and I didn't have the job title of product management, but I was kind of doing that job. And so that I said, this is the DNA of all the things I am. I like looking at user problems and market problems and building innovation to, to address them. Um, but then I looked at, oh, you know, product management had become all the rage now. And so I looked around at the successful product managers around me and I didn't look like them, you know, they all needed to have like Stanford computer science degrees and, and, and things like that. And so it took me a little while to figure out what the right angle was. Uh, and then I realized I, I needed to just do some simultaneously, some experiments myself, but also just expose what I knew to as many people as I can, so I could get their feedback on it and learn how to position it. So, you know, I simultaneously, took a new career at, um, at an early stage startup, which was a new experience for me, but I, I do something I wanted to do. Uh, and then I also started consulting and then eventually I started teaching. And, and, and in that phase of my career, that was the teaching was the thing that probably I, I treasure the most. Um, but uh, it took me a little while to find the right place. And, uh, and, and it was a combination of, probably two things, you know, one being the type of market we were servicing that, that had to inspire me. I wanted to solve a problem. So I joined, you know, the, the story is I joined a, a stealth very early startup that was in this sort of consumer media space. And uh, I didn't jive with the culture there. You know, I thought the problem, the market problem we were solving, while it was interesting because I'd done messaging stuff before, it didn't feel like it was changing the world. Um, and, and quite frankly, the founders were, I felt not fixated on the right ideas. And so we amicably parted ways. And, you know, then I, um, I, I moved into sort of education technology, working with a number of ex-colleagues actually from BlackBerry, which was really fascinating because I was a parent and I, I was very passionate about education. But um, again, it was the, the role, the things that I was good at, I felt like, weren't always the best fit uh, in that company, but each one sure. led me to the next. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, probably the funniest story was how I ended up in NIMI. Um, and, uh, and, and that was purely like serendipitous and circumstantial. You know, I was, I was working for desire to learn uh, the, the, the tech company. And my job there was to launch an app store with a number of other ed tech startups, uh, which we did. And uh, something I was very proud of. And, and there was one, you know, pretty amazing, prominent, early stage ed tech company in Toronto that we were partners with. Uh, and then one day I noticed that one of the, the C-level executives of the startup had moved on to a new career. And when I dug into what he was doing, I realized that it had aligned to a lot of things that I really was hungry to do at BlackBerry, but couldn't do. Uh, not because... <laughs> really of my failing more or, or, or really the company's failing just you know just misaligned direction which is which is okay um so i met up with him and uh and and said you know tell me about this new thing you're working on i hear it's in the personal identity security space and i find that really really interesting i think the the ability to 
have a system that trusts that you are who you say you are and understands what you're willing to, to give consent to, to open up convenience around you is really fascinating. And I think we had the potential to do some really interesting things like that with BlackBerry because I ran a product there called BlackBerry ID. And, uh, and this company was doing it using a biometric identifier. And, uh, and he said, when he heard me speak over breakfast, he said, well, all the ideas you've got are kind of where we want this to go. So how would you feel about joining us? And so by the end of breakfast, completely unintentionally, I was working for him. Uh, and that individual was, was you know, uh, Andrew D'Souza, uh, a friend and, and a mentor. And of course, uh, has completely changed the, the venture world since then with his company, ClearBank. Um, and, uh, and then I joined, yeah, NIMI. And it was, it was some of the smartest, most tenacious people I'd ever worked with. Um, and, uh, and it was the mission that I, that I was trying to, that I'd been trying to pursue. Uh, so it took me a couple of years to <coughs> sort of find my right place. Uh, but that's what it was. And then that would eventually lead to, to MedStack, um, you know, again, through, through circumstance. Uh, but at the same time of doing all of those things, I'd taken up some, some consulting work. And I also, um, uh, I also started teaching, um, which was a really, again, totally accidental opportunity, but really transformative. I learned a lot about myself. I learned about what I can bring. And it was like that question I'd been asking myself after I left BlackBerry, what can I bring? And I learned it really when I was teaching. And, and probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my entire career is that some of my students, um, in the course that I taught, which was an intro to product management course at a, at a, you know, a professional education institution called BrainStation, uh, have moved on to successful and senior positions in, in product uh, in, in some really great companies. Um, so that makes, me, that makes me really, really happy. So like you said, in 2015, you then started MedStack. Mm -hmm. You had extensive product experience at this point, but you never started a company and you'd never taken on really that, that CEO role. Mm -hmm. So what happened? What happened in the early days of MedStack? How did that come about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, you know, you can, you can look back and, and sort of look at your successes and take, take credit for them and say, you know, I knew <laughs> what was going to happen, but that's not always the most honest thing to do. And certainly wouldn't be in this case. Um, Again, I, I had not really thought about becoming a founder. It wasn't the thing that I pictured myself doing, partially because of, I think, two things. The first being, when I was younger, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a builder more than a leader, for lack of a better word, although leadership was something I realized I could do pretty early on. And then secondly, I really, really liked being part of a, part of a larger force. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I never felt like bigger companies are better than smaller companies or better than bigger companies, what have you. It was more just, you know, are, is the organization being innovative and can you be a part of that? Um, but while I was at NIMI, um, again, you know, the, the, the stars had aligned, right? So we were preparing to launch the, um, uh, the, the developer program. So tools we could give to software engineers at other companies who could then, you know, build things using our, our capability. This idea of platform business always seems to open up career opportunities for me because that's what led me to NIMI from D2L. And then at NIMI, we ran this little hackathon contest on a weekend with some pizza and beer and, 
and invited some developers to just build some stuff that we could use for marketing collateral really more than anything else. And this one individual from the community came and, and built something really interesting and, and I befriended him that night because uh, I was just fascinated by the way he thought uh, about users and problems and markets and, and the application of technology. And he himself was there on com under complete false pretenses because, or I should say mistaken pretenses, because he actually thought the NIMU was a healthcare product, even though it wasn't, it was an identity and security product. Um, and he was fascinated in digital health. And so a few months later, almost a year later, I left that company because of, uh, again, on, on amicable terms, but uh, the company had, had sort of shifted direction. And he found out, he called me, he said, I'm, I'm launching a new startup. Do you want to run it with me? And my reaction was, well, I'm honored you're asking me, but sort of why me, you know, and, and I never really thought about doing this. And he said, it has nothing to do with your job titles or, or experience or any of that other stuff. It's because you really care about the power of platforms and you've done that your entire career. And I have a major platform problem I'd like to bring to you. And I realized that I can't do this alone. I need a business partner. So I met him for a drink and, and he told me about this idea that people who are building software in healthcare actually have a lot of trouble commercializing and, and expanding because they have a massive barrier or a mountain of work in data security that they have to handle. And it's really the same work every time and they have no expertise on how to do it. And I reacted to him the similar way that I, I get a lot of reaction, which is like, you gotta be kidding me. That, that doesn't exist. And he said, no. And I've seen it firsthand because he was running a software development agency that was building healthcare apps. And so we decided to pursue it. And, you know, one part of the story that not a lot of people know is that I wasn't the CEO in the beginning. Um, he was, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was, uh, I was the head of business development, if you will. And it would only be a year later or a year and a half later when we went, when we decided to pursue MedStack as a full-time concern, because we, we just knew we were onto a really important problem that needed solving. And if we didn't do it, how long would it be before somebody else um, decided to pursue it with the passion that we had? Uh, a year and a half later, we were meeting with uh, the mentors at an, at an accelerator that we were at. And they said, which one of you is the CEO? And I said, well, he is. And they said, well, why are you doing all the talking? And we realized I was the pitch person. And so we had a heart to heart and decided to shift roles. And um, I mean, so much of what Menstack is, is, is based on, I think, a really good relationship, collaborative relationship between Simon and myself. So when you started Medstack, it sounds like you were somewhat of a security novice as well as a healthcare novice. Mm -hmm. How did you bridge that gap? Yeah, uh, I, I was less of a security novice than a healthcare novice. Um, sure. But, uh, but you know, again, I, I never claimed to be eminently technical. Um, the things I drew upon were some experience I had with how to position and talk about security and how people like to use it because BlackBerry at its core was a security proposition. NIMI at its core was a security proposition. Uh, but they weren't like selling security. They were just using right. security to deliver other things. And, and that's something I really latched onto because I realized at the end of the day that the security community often makes this mistake and says, buy us because we have the best security. And unfortunately, from a positioning perspective, security itself is, it, it carries the most weight when it's implemented in its core uh, as part of a larger value proposition. And, and that's the story that I like to tell. Uh, but I have family members who are in healthcare and 
you know, my, my parents were, were getting elderly and I was seeing their healthcare experiences. And I said, you know, I, I've not been a founder myself, but I've mentored a number of them and I've seen them and I've done diligence and acquisitions and things like that. And founders work really, really, really hard. I mean, they're much easier lives. You don't do this for the money. You don't do this for the comfort. You do it because you believe in the mission. And so shouldn't we make it easier for founders who are pursuing such an important mission, like making healthcare work better? And of course, this is you know, five years before COVID happened. So I couldn't have predicted where we'd end up. Uh, should we make their lives better and easier? And, and so that's what motivated me to, to do this. And I just kind of went in knowing I didn't know all the things I didn't know and, and was looking to learn wherever I could. Um, and I said, I'm going to orchestrate, I'm going to take advantage of that, which is something, a tool I'd always use in my career. When you don't have expertise, that's not a bad thing because what, what you can do is that enables you to ask the questions that other people who don't have expertise also need asking. So if I had to develop a level of knowledge that I could simplify for my simplistic mind, then I would be able to deliver that messaging to external people who were also new to this very interesting space that we were in, whether they're customers or investors or you know, potential employees or what have you. Um, and so I made it my mission to kind of simplify the things we were thinking to a world that didn't get it. And at the time we created Benstack, like HIPAA compliance was such the realm of highbrow, you know, expensive ex experts just in that field. Like there was no way to do it unless you paid somebody a lot of money who would deliberately make everything uh, look complicated <laughs> uh, on purpose so they could justify charging you a lot of money with other privacy lawyers or, or other such people. And, and we said, we got to democratize this for everybody. And let's start by understanding we don't know everything and, uh, and simplify it as much as possible. And, and, you know, I leaned on all the tools that ever used, uh, whether that was, you know, understanding, working with aerodynamics engineers at, at, at uh, Bombardier or working with, uh, um, uh, you know, software developers at BlackBerry or working with, or even, you know, more infrastructure managers at BlackBerry or electronics engineers at, at NIMI or, or what have you, you know, um, how do you translate that into, into a language that the world can understand? And that's kind of really what I, what I leaned into. And I still do today. And after you took over as CEO, how do you feel your background in product management kind of influenced your approach uh, as CEO and driving the company? Uh, very, very deeply. Um, I, I am more convinced than ever that product strategy is the core of entrepreneurship. It isn't everything. There is a difference between founder and product manager, but I think product managers are, are, are some of the people that are best suited to eventually becoming founders. Because if you don't understand the product question, the other stuff isn't going to matter as much. And, and again, the product question, going back to the kinds of things I teach and mentor around is who do you care about specifically? Like get as specific as you can. What are they trying to do? How do they do that today? Why are they frustrated by it? And what do you have that can make that different? And, you know, I, I don't even think we've nailed it all on, on, at, at uh, MedStack yet, but we're asking ourselves that question every single day. Um, 
and everything I do or think about in product, I've been trying to instill in the company, uh, even to the degree of us eventually hiring our own product manager, which took a long time. And, and we have an incredible one in, in Marcus Pellini, um, who, uh, you know, bless his soul, he's been, he's been taking everything I've been saying and implementing it into the, um, into the company. But every time you get a new piece of information, whether that's industry news, technology evolution, um, competitive analysis, feedback from a customer we won or a customer we didn't win or a customer we won and lost, all of that is product data. And, and I feed that back into, uh, into the organization and say, what can we learn from this? And, and how do we need to think about things differently? What are the boundary conditions of everything we need to do? Where do we need to push harder? Where would pushing harder just be pushing harder for its own sake? And good enough is good enough. Um, I, I'm really a big fan of this framework that I've introduced to the company and we use in a lot of things that I learned from another product manager I worked with many years ago uh, called the Kano model. And what the Kano model says is that everything you do can either be something where if you don't have it, you can't compete, but if you have it better than anybody else, nobody will care. Or if you, or if you don't have it, you can still compete, but if you do it better than anybody else, it's the one thing everybody will remember and thank you for or in the middle, which is something completely linear. And every feature of every product or every proposition of product you think of falls in one of those three things. And so these are some of the things that we apply to all of our thinking around prioritization, messaging, focus, uh, sales script, uh, customer risk, um, budgeting, for, uh, forecasting, et cetera. Interesting. And given this focus on product, how is the the product itself actually evolved over time since the early days of MedStack almost six years ago now? Uh, quite a bit. I mean, we've done something in our company that is, uh, is, <clears throat> is considered to be a death knell for a lot of companies at our stage and very few can survive it. Um, I think we've survived it. Obviously, you know, it's a startup, so it's a, it's a different day every day, but um, uh we did a major product pivot in, in the early days of our company, um, meaning we, we had one product for the first, you know, three and a half years and another product since then. Um, but the reason that was possible is because we took lean startup to heart. And that's harder to do in some industries than in others. Uh, some people might think it's, might suggest that it's really hard to do in security, uh, but it doesn't have to be, you know, lean startup simply is around putting the idea uh, in motion that says you understand the limitations of what you have and you're very transparent about them. Uh, and, uh, and then you just, with that as a foundation, then you pursue every piece of learning you can possibly get. And it was really, I got to credit Simon for this. It was really his idea that said, you know, and, and I'd come to it from, worlds of being surrounded by lots of big engineering teams. So I was like, hey, what are we building? He's like, we're not building anything. We're going to put this into market, even when we have to do it manually. And of course, years later, I would learn that some of the best companies in the world have done that. Um, and so we actually got to revenue very, very quickly in a very non-scalable manual way. It's almost like we had a, a services play that we were selling as a SaaS product, uh, partially because he was running a services company before. So we went in and we, we configured security because we knew a little bit about security in the infrastructure, or I should say he did. We configured security in the infrastructure and then wrote up the privacy policies and said here to our customers, it's all done for you. Uh, and then 
the purpose of that, which I don't know if we would have probably articulated that way at the time, but it definitely was the truth, was learning whether people cared. That's what it was. Like, did, did it matter? Did people, did the founders of other digital health companies go, oh, thank you for doing that for me? Were we able to go to their customers, the hospitals and insurance companies and go, here's how this company's doing security. And they say, great, you've done it correctly. And so we did that for a few years and we learned a lot of information, not all of it good. You know, we lost some customers. Uh, we, we had people pressure us on pricing. We uh, won some customers and then they paid us happily. And then we found out we didn't really know why they were paying us. Uh, even they didn't know why they were paying us. And we took all of that data and in really in 2019, I would say, in the end of 2018, 2019, shortly after we did our seed financing, <laughs> we applied all of that to a completely new proposition, which was 100% a, a rebuild from the ground up, which is a current product MedStack control that answered all of the gaps that we felt existed in the previous proposition. Um, and that was done from a product perspective. So, you know, we had a pretty, pretty successful 2020 um, in, in a lot of ways. And when I reflect on it, which I mentioned in, in uh, our blog poster and sort of year in the review, yep. As a product manager, it was hard for me to ignore the fact that what we'd actually done was pivoted on the four P's of product and marketing. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we knew we'd proven the market proposition and then we understood why the, pre why the product in response to that proposition previously was limited. So we changed the product and we were doubling down on the new product. Uh, we changed the way we priced the product because it wasn't priced properly. It was it was not, it wouldn't scale as customers were successful and in the way that they could use it and, and realize value. So we introduced some new pricing, which actually worked much better for that. We shifted away from describing what our product was technically, which is, oh, we have, and sorry, I shouldn't even say technically. Describing our product as a function of the number of engineering hours put into the product. Let me put it that way, which mm -hmm. is now I realize a mistake a lot of founders make. You want people to recognize your hard work. So you go, oh, we spent the most amount of time building infrastructure orchestration, the tools that tell the servers how big they have to be. So that's what people want to pay for, which is, which is what we used to say. And then people would kind of go, yeah, but I don't understand why you're so much more expensive than Amazon. And we said, well, no, I mean, we're sitting on top of Amazon um, or, or Microsoft or what have you. And so we shifted our positioning and said, no, 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 no. The thing you're paying us for, what you value, because we asked ourselves, why did people value us? And why did they not value us? And we teased all apart to a new positioning statement that said, we are compliance automation. You need to be HIPAA compliant. We automate that whole thing. We're not going to teach you how to do it. We'll automate it for you. By the way, you realize that automation through infrastructure, but we're an automation company. And, um, uh, and then with that stronger messaging, we made the change to the final P, which is that we doubled down on content and messaging and referrals and said, customers should come to us when they're ready. We shouldn't go and try to push ourselves on people. And so we shifted from an outbound to an inbound strategy and all that led, it's very product thinking and led to, to sort of where we are now. And before we wrap up, I have to ask about your role as a mentor. You currently serve as a mentor for three different organizations. What inspired this focus on mentoring and, and your own kind of giving back to the community? Um, somebody had asked me not long ago how that started. And I actually don't remember. Um, but 
what I can say is it's been an extremely enriching experience. I really enjoy it. Um, I, you know, sometimes you, you sort of realize that the best satisfaction you get out of your work is based on the results that other people can deliver based on the stuff you've given them. It's, it's almost like technology platform thinking, but instead of the technology being the platform, I made myself a platform. I said, a platform enables another entity to be more successful, uh, whether that's you know an API or or what have you, um, or a distribution channel, or knowledge. And and so I said, if I can, if I myself can be a platform, what does that mean? And um, my work at particularly at BlackBerry, I had a, a few people I worked with there who told me that their careers were shaped thereafter by working with me as a mentor uh, and or a direct manager. And I said that that's got to be worth something. So can I do more of that kind of thing? You know, if I can make more people successful, why don't I do that? Uh, so that would eventually lead into the teaching gig, uh, which itself was successful. And so through the teaching gig, some, some of my former students went to these accelerators and incubators and said, said, you know, every time I had a question, I, I picked up on the things that biology would teach me, but then I'd give them a call and say, am I understanding this correctly? Is this how I apply it? And he gave me the time. And I think you, have a tremendous benefit by bringing him on as a, as a mentor. So I was invited uh, at first by the by the DMZ, and then eventually, you know, I'm I'm working with a number of other organizations, the Biomedical Zone and TechStars and Founder Institute, <coughs> um, H2I, and um, it's been beneficial because it's helped give me an opportunity to tell my story, tell the story of my company. Um, you know, we recruit, so it's a bit of recruiter marketing. Uh, as well, some of the people that I mentor themselves are, are or no digital health founders. Uh, and so there's, there's opportunities for my company as well. Uh, we are an organization that does multiple things. Our technology, our channel, our brand, our partnerships, our time outside of the company towards helping entrepreneurs solve the world's biggest problems and be successful doing it. That's what I care about. And so this is part of that. Yeah, I think it's great. There's obviously a number of people who can benefit from that experience and all your learnings over your career. Uh, so finally, what's next for you and MedStack looking ahead? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, what the world has faced in the last, you know, nine, 10 months uh, has been in a lot of ways pretty, pretty horrible. Uh, we've all known people that have been affected by it you know, economically or personally or, <clears throat> or in their health or worse. Um, and uh, it's been, it's been a terrible reckoning for, for modern society. But I guess if there's anything I'm thankful to be working in an industry and working with people who can, who can address it or do something about it. Uh, and so, you know, first thing I guess I would like to say is uh, to anybody listening who, um, works or supports or is involved in, in healthcare or keep, or in other ways of keeping our society running um, successfully today. Uh, I'm very appreciative of what they do and, and take it very seriously and, and thank them for their efforts. Um, but, you know, because we've found ourselves in the sudden thrust in the spotlight of digital health, all of us working in digital health, well, I shouldn't say all of us, uh, my customers who work in digital health for years have known this is the way that things should go. You know, you don't always need to be sitting in a crowded emergency room in a hospital. You can get the care you need 
through home monitoring, through intelligent devices, through telemedicine. Um, data in healthcare should be fluid and, uh, and, uh, and of course, highly secure and associated with the patient, no matter where they get care from. These are a number of things people have been saying for a long time, but the industry has been very slow and, and faced a bunch of inertia around adopting it, and now it's been forced to. Um, I read a great statistic uh, a week ago that said that in the total number of insurance claims, health insurance claims in the U.S., um, virtual care used to be like less than half a percent. And then in April, it's, it jumped to about 14 percent and it's settling somewhere in north of 6 percent, uh, which is, a, you know, 6 percent doesn't sound like a big number, but it's way bigger than half a percent. Uh, and so that, you know, Digital health has enjoyed its best 12 months of venture investment ever. This industry is now at the forefront. Uh, healthcare must move to the cloud. Data must be secure. These things are not uh, open to debate or compromise. Um, and so I think we have a very busy year ahead of us. I think my customers have a very busy year ahead of us. Uh, and uh, we have some cool things planned. Um, I won't give too much away, but... Uh, you know, there's some there's some interesting new th announcements that will be coming from EdStack in the next uh, you know one to two quarters around new capabilities uh, that uh, that forward the experience for our our customers. Uh, I'm interested in pursuing partnerships, channel partnerships, and uh, and uh, and other such opportunities to take our story uh, even further. So I think it's going to be a pretty big year for us. And for our listeners, are you currently looking for investment or hiring? Uh, yes to both. Um, so we are speaking to a number of investors about uh, a new round of financing into MedStack, picking up on, you know, again, validating our market proposition in 2017 and 18, uh, putting together a, um, uh, a strategy in 2019, building the right product last year and, and now scaling it. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, those conversations are interesting. We find from an investor perspective, um, the, the seed, post-seed, uh, cybersecurity, enterprise, SaaS type investors, developer tools investors are probably the best fit for us. Although we're very interested in speaking to those interested in digital health because we can help their other portfolio companies be successful in solving one of the biggest challenges they'll face. Uh, we are also growing, growing the team. We'll be recruiting almost in, probably in almost every role uh, in MedStack. Uh, currently looking for um, a, uh, a sales lead. Um, so somebody used to the startup journey because we're a startup, but also our customers are startups uh, and, uh, and and sort of uh, B to SMB SaaS sales um, is, is sort of the, the hook. Doesn't need to be healthcare. It doesn't even need to be security. Um, but uh, those are the things that we're passionate about. Uh, we're also looking to hire in our engineering team. Um, so uh, full stack developers with, uh, with a bit of a, a, you know, a tilt in their hat towards security is, uh, is always appreciated. So certainly head over to medstack.co and, and you'll see our, our postings there and, and happy to chat with anybody interested. Perfect. Thank you again for your time, Balaji. Thanks very much, Kyle. I uh, really appreciate you putting the show together and, and definitely looking forward to, um, to, to working with you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.